Hello and welcome to episode 66 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm Richard Goslin, editor of the Society's Members Magazine, Unfiltered. We're kicking off the new year with something a little different. I guess, like the Society's whiskies, you never quite know what's coming up next. And we thought we'd share this story from our founder, Pip Hills, about how whiskey saved the day on a road trip from Edinburgh to Prague back in 1990. Those of you who already know something about the Society's history may recall that Pip's vintage Lagonda car played a key role in our story, carrying precious quarter casks of whisky from Speyside back down to Edinburgh to be shared out with friends into their lemonade bottles from his home on Scotland Street in the new town. The Lagonda also took a starring role on a road trip that Pip and his brother-in-law Dick Pountain decided to undertake to witness Vaclav Havel's inauguration as President of the Czech Republic. The magazine, The Classic Motoring Review, subsequently commissioned Pip and Dick to write a piece about the journey and how Society Whiskey helped to make it a success. We decided to ask Pip and Dick to tell us that story in their own words. But first, a bit of background. And if you haven't made yourself comfortable with a suitable Society Whiskey already, Now's the chance to do it. In August 1968, Soviet tanks rumbled into the narrow streets of Prague to quash those democratic reforms the rest of the world called the Prague Spring. Somewhat less momentously, and 22 years later, two innocent British adventurers rolled far less aggressively into town in a 1937 Lagonda, admittedly one powered by a huge diesel engine originally intended for a British armoured car and carrying a payload of excellent single malt Scotch whisky. Surprisingly, there is a connection between those two entries into Prague, a connection called Berthold Bertie Hornung. He was an architect and town planner. He was born in 1925 in Ostrava, Czechoslovakia and survived Auschwitz before studying architecture and engineering. In 1950, he became a planner under the Soviet regime and played a key role in the design of Prague's metro system. Never a yes man, however, he had the temerity to send back 20 trainloads of Russian rolling stock because they were the wrong gauge. Now marked as a troublemaker, Bertie was forced to flee the city during the 1968 invasion along with his wife Hannah and two daughters, carrying only whatever possessions would fit into suitcases. Bertie then settled in Edinburgh, where he became a respected town planner, devising a transport layout for the city, after which he headed the British Council team that in 1972 helped to replan Jerusalem. He also became firm friends with Pip Hills, an authority on diesel engines and Scotch whisky, in the Scottish capital. But what Bertie could not do was revisit Prague, until 1989 that is, following the collapse of the Soviet regime. In 1990, Václav Havel was inaugurated as the new president of Czechoslovakia and the first free elections to be held there were scheduled for June the 8th and 9th. Bertie was invited to visit the city and have his achievements recognised and it was Pip who offered to drive him there in style in his magnificent, unique, classic Lagonda. The car was a Lagonda LD45. It had been built in 1937 
and it was my everyday transport for 25 years. A big grand touring saloon with an alloy body and a sunroof. It had been made for journeys like this. The lid of the book folded down flat to take a large leather trunk which was fastened with straps of the same. It weighed two tons. The original four and a half litre petrol engine had been removed and a four litre diesel put in its place by gardeners in Manchester who at the time thought that there might come a day when there would be a demand for diesel engine motor cars. By about 1950, they concluded that they were wrong and sold the car to a farmer who sold it to me for £500. It did 40 miles to the gallon and, with five gallons of spare fuel carried in the offside wheel arch, could manage just under a 1,000 miles on a filly. It was a common sight around Edinburgh and it participated in many improbable events. The Gardner engine was a lovely thing, an alloy cylinder block and an injection pump whose timing could be adjusted by a dog sliding on a spirally spline shaft, all controlled by a lever on the steering column. It made a lot of noise, so occasionally I'd have to cope with the condescension of some knowing prat who thought it was a fine car with a wrecked petrol engine. Less often, someone would ask wonderingly, is that a diesel? and I was happy to speak to folk like that. Just once I came across a real expert on Granton Pier on a sunny morning, Walter Scott, marine engineer extraordinary, and his brother were taking their tea from oily mugs when I drove up. They'd never seen the car before, but Walter listened to the din of the engine and said, is that a Gerdner? I said, yes. The splines on the timing shaft are worn, he said. On cold mornings, the gardener produced much smelly smoke until it heated up. The sunroof leaked and tended to discharge pints of water down the driver's neck when braking, conducive neither to safety nor comfort. But the back seat was dry, and on winter journeys, my children would sit there, covered by an ancient black bearskin rug, and sing to me. Road holding was poor as was acceleration, but on a motorway the Lagonda would happily cruise at 90 mile an hour all day, barring obstacles, for the brakes were rubbish. Bertie and I settled on May 1990 for our trip, but before that arrived he suffered a heart attack, and the rigours of a road trip might have killed him, so he decided to fly, and I would go by road and meet him there. I cast around for a companion who wouldn't be daunted by a jaunt like this, and Dick Panton, an old friend and now brother-in-law, jumped at the chance. At the time, I was running the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, which pioneered the sale of unfiltered single-cast Scotch Malt Whiskies, and we decided that a dozen bottles might come in handy. I joined Pip at his flat in Edinburgh's new town. We loaded up the magnificent silver Lagonda, then set off for Hull stopping only to fill its 20-gallon tank with diesel. It wouldn't see a pump again until the Czech border. An overnight ferry trip landed us at Rotterdam the next morning, and in glorious sunshine we hit the autobahns heading for Bonn and the Rhine. The Lagonda behaved itself perfectly. Travelling down the left bank of the Rhine to Koblenz, we crossed to the right bank by ferry, then proceeded down the beautiful gorge lined with castles towards Bingen. Late May on the upper middle Rhine is Spargelfest, the time of asparagus. 
and for the next two days those fat white candle-like stalks were the special on every menu at every stop. The Lagonda became a talking point everywhere we stopped. At our first hotel we described our quest in the bar and the locals explained to us that German has a word for it, Schwagerurlaub, or literally brother-in-law spree. After Mainz we abandoned the river and struck out past Frankfurt and Schweinfurt for the Czech border at Mark Tredwitz, interrupted only by a short detour to Bayreuth for me to see Wagner's Opera House. I'm a fan, but lucky for Pip that the Lagonda had neither radio nor cassette player. In those days, crossing the Czech border still involved complicated juggling with currencies. You had to change a certain minimum amount and couldn't take any back out. But filling up with 20 gallons of diesel took care of a big chunk. The next night we spent in Carla Vivari, also known as Carlsbad, a weird combination of faded Baroque splendour with Sputnik-era Soviet brutalism. On the way into Prague, we encountered our first problem. The Lagonda's gear change started to be noisy and difficult, and in one of the outer suburbs it refused to change at all. I should explain at this point that the massive four-litre four-cylinder gardener had been connected to a Jaguar gearbox in a custom bell housing with a Laycock hydraulic overdrive sometime back in the 1950s. It was the latter that was playing up and we both got down on our knees in the gutter with the socket set spread on the pavement. After some 15 minutes of spannering, a man in a blue boiler suit sprinted across the road and asked us what was the matter in perfect English. He told us that he'd spent World War II in England as an aero mechanic servicing the Free Czech Air Force's Spitfires. With his assistance, the box soon went back together, gear changing was resumed and we carried on into the city centre. As we approached the central square, the Starometska, from a side street, we encountered dense crowds of people and a procession of classic Czech cars. Beetle-backed Tartred 97s, Skoda Rapid 9012 seaters, streamlined Skoda 935s and more. There was some kind of car show taking place, so we simply slunk into the line and entered the square where we were received quite cordially and no one inquired about our credentials. We didn't win any prizes, but the Lagonda attracted a lot of admiring attention. This display of lovely old cars didn't surprise us too much given the Czech's history of excellent design and engineering, which was every bit as illustrious as that of their German neighbours. One striking irony of our visit was how easy it was to drive and park our large car around the centre of Prague, due to the then paucity of private cars. The biggest hazard was mistakenly entering narrow one-way streets to find a tram coming in the other direction. Such cars as there were were mostly cute little trabants, made of papier-mâché in white or duck-egg blue. We got into conversation with one trabby owner who'd admired the Lagonda and he opened the bonnet for us. 
Inside was what amounted to a lawnmower engine, but with a large bulbous expansion chamber exhaust coiled over the top that looked uncannily like the intestines of a large animal. Knowing that they were soon to become extinct, we even discussed buying one and driving it back to the UK, but fortunately we cooled on that idea. In Prague we met up with Bertie who had fixed it for us to be put up in a private house within walking distance from the Starometska. We had a couple of days free before the ceremony at which Bertie was to be welcomed and gave a speech. So we took in some of Prague's sites like the Hradkani Castle where Havel was now installed, St Vitus Cathedral and of course the ghetto with its statue over the golem resisted buying any replicas. We drank a fair amount of excellent Pilsner beer and ate roast goose with sauerkraut in Hostineku Kalicha, favourite restaurant of the fictitious good soldiers Fike. Despite his recent heart attack, Bertie was in good spirits in the hometown he thought he'd never see again. Which prompts an aside about how we first met. When Bertie arrived in Edinburgh, friends found him a sparsely furnished flat and he had very little money. However, before his incarceration in Auschwitz in, I think, 1942, he'd been a cabinet maker in Western Bohemia, so if he could find some timber, he could make furniture. I heard about this from mutual friends and mentioned it to my dad, a docker and connoisseur of fine eastern hardwoods, don't ask why, who happened to have a large quantity of teak from which Bertie delighted, made Bauhaus-style tables and chairs. We became firm friends and spent a lot of time looking at cities and working with wood together. He it was who taught me how to sharpen edge tools. A chisel won't do unless you can take a sliver of skin from the tip of your middle finger without drawing blood. I did that just yesterday. The reception thrown for him in Prague was an uplifting affair and we organised a tasting of the society's whiskies for those who attended. They liked them a lot. Afterwards, we all dined in a spectacular restaurant perched on a hillside above the city. The next day, Bertie flew home and Dick and I took the road again as I'd formed a plan to sample the relatively undiscovered white wines of southern Moravia as a possible extra string to our whiskey bowl. On June 9th, 1990, the free election resulted in a sweeping victory for Havel's Civic Forum and a great outdoor concert was held in the Starometska to celebrate. Czechoslovakia's three best symphony orchestras, the Prague, the Brno and the Bratislava, occupied three corners of the square and were conducted by Rafael Kubelik in a performance of Schmetterner's Mavlast, My Country. A sea of joyful people were waving little tricolour flags and as the Moldau theme swelled I found myself leaking a little salt water from the eyes. We met a friend of mine who was covering the election for the Financial Times and he took us to lunch and introduced us to some young staff members of Lidove Novini, the oldest Czech daily newspaper. They were excited about the prospects of democracy and equally so about the prospects of being able to buy their own apartments. Welcome to the Western world. Next day we set off for the vineyards of southern Moravia by way of Pilsen and a visit to the Urquell Pils Brewery where we saw one of their enormous oak vats being retarred and had our best meal since leaving Germany in their canteen. 
In Pilsen, we also witnessed upsetting scenes of Dickensian squalor in a Roma section of town, a stark reminder of the uneven way the old regime had bestowed its resources. The vineyards turned out to be a disappointment too, as the wines were flabby, insipid examples of the Muller-Turgau grape. This was, remember, at this point, still a Soviet-era economy. As we drove through town after town, it was impossible to find any accommodation or restaurants. There were miles of agro-prairie planted with barley for the beer industry, which had no villages at all in them. As we turned and headed back toward the border, we drove through the heavily forest nature reserve of Tribonsko, miles of dense forest with few villages, and it was there that we had our only proper emergency of the trip. We were bowling along at around 60 miles an hour, enjoying the scenery, when there was an almighty clang followed by a hideous scraping noises. On stopping, we discovered that the exhaust pipe's holding bracket had fractured and the silencer was dragging on the ground. We hadn't seen a town for miles, nor were there any ahead, and mobile phones were, of course, some years in the future. Were we dismayed? We were not, because both Pip and I have black belts in the art of bodging. We both understand the universal curative virtues of araldite, gaffer tape and wire. Though I'll admit Pip has the better of me in that while for me wire means coat hangers, for him it means fencing wire, a great coil of which was in the boot along with proper parallel jawed fencing pliers to make crisp right angled bends in it. We soon knocked together a new bracket from this wire, but the problem was how to attach it. It was clear that we needed to araldite it to the cross member from which the old one had broken off, but this was so covered in dirt and grease that there was no way that epoxy would bond to it. A degreasing agent was required. It did feel faintly wrong as we poured out the hundred-proof Ardbeg whiskey, but it certainly did the trick. We attached the wire bracket with a paste made of araldite reinforced with nearby sand. It held all the way back to England and there was quite enough hard beg left for a couple of drams before we set off from home. There's a coda to this story which did have a happy ending with Pip, Dick and the Lagonda making it safely home just with a little less hard beg in the boot. Bertie Hornung continued to advise the Czech government on planning matters until his death in Edinburgh in 1997. He created training courses and forged a link between the Technical University of Prague and Heriot Watt University that persists to this day. Pip Hills sold the Lagonda in 1998, now lives in Montrose and drives a very sensible Land Rover Discovery. Dick Pountain lives in Camden Town and he has his Freedom Pass. You can find more whiskey adventures in every issue of Unfiltered, the magazine for members of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, which we publish at the start of every month. Find out more about that, who we are and what we're all about by visiting smws.com. That's it for this episode of Whiskey Talk. Until the next time, cheers. Cheers.